Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we've just sung this morning, we thank you for the love with which you loved us. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for salvation, which comes to us through your Son. We thank you for your grace so abundant and so free. We thank you for the word of the cross, the gospel. Your word tells us it is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we thank you for your word, which is able to save our souls, which serves to conform us into the image of your Son. And may your Spirit do that work in us even now as we are confronted and as we are challenged and as we are comforted by your word. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And we'll be starting this morning at the last verse of chapter 2, last verse of Malachi chapter 2, and, uh, and ending at Malachi 3 verse 15. If you're using those Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you, you'll find that on page 802, 802. So we're coming back to finish this book this week and next, Lord willing, and that'll bring us into the Christmas season. And even today, as we look at Malachi Three, right at the beginning there, we'll get a little sneak peek of Jesus being foretold in Malachi over 400 years before he would come. God's voice is heard through this prophet, but after this there would be no more prophets until John the Baptist, who we're also going to see here today. All of that makes this little book that we've been looking at very important, especially building up to the anticipation and longing for God to come into our world in the person of his son. So just before I read this section today, I want to read a verse at the beginning of this section, the very first verse, chapter 2, verse 17, and then a verse at the end. And I'm going to do that just to highlight what it is that makes God confront his people here. And then we'll work our way from the front end and the back end in towards the middle, where we'll find God to be exceedingly gracious to people who, like me, like us, are less than deserving of his grace. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And then he goes on to tell them. And then go over to chapter 3, verse 13 where it says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? And then he tells them. Those verses are what bookends this section today. The issue that God takes up with his people here is that God's people were making wrong assessments about God. Wrong evaluations about God. It wasn't just happening during the time of Malachi. It had been happening for a long time with God's people. But now he confronts the issue. The point is, if we think of these words, what we say about God matters. How we think about God matters. It was their words about God that were wrong. And it's their words that God finally here addresses. The underlying issue here is that people felt like they could assess, they had the right and they were entitled to assess and to make value judgments about 
who God is. They could evaluate God. They thought they had God figured out. And worse, in doing that, they made wrong assessments about God. You have wearied God with your words. Your words are hard against me. We live in a world today that totally gets God wrong. That shouldn't surprise us, but what might surprise us is that we have, in our day and age, churches and various entire denominations that are bowing to the pressures and to the influencers of our world and are ignoring God's clear word on subjects for which there previously would have been no debate. I can only imagine how wearying our world is to God. But those kinds of word against God by God's people, and you have to just sort of stand back and think about that, they were speaking against God, they were pitting themselves against God, against their creator, against the very one who set his special and sovereign and distinct love on them, against the one who rescued them. Those kinds of words against God you would think, would trigger God's immediate response, one of justice and fury. And God does respond, but God does not immediately wipe them out, which is what he would have every right to do. He gently corrects their evaluations, and then he even invites them back into relationship with him. So with all that as a backdrop, let me read the whole section. Malachi 2.17, You have wearied the Lord's the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? And the Lord answers by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them, that is, those who do evil. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly Come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. 
and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. As far as the reading of God's holy word. Now as I read verse 8 to 10, somewhere in there, some of you are hoping maybe that, or some of you are dreading that this is going to be a message on tithing. Um, that is definitely in here, and uh, I just want to, though, see how it fits into the bigger context of what he's saying. So we will talk about that, and of course all sorts of um, people have taken these verses in all kinds of directions that they don't mean when they focus only on these verses, and so I want to make sure that we see how they fit into the context of Malachi. If you like following an outline, I've made the beginning and the end into one section where God's patience is tested, and then the middle part, the heart of the passage, is where we'll see God's grace extended. It's extended to these people who are questioning their God, and we're going to see it extended in four ways. So let's start with God's complaint against his people. It says that the people have wearied him with their words, with their hard words against him. These aren't just offhand general thoughts that they were sort of discussing over a bunch of issues. This is not just commentary about uh, the game last night around the water cooler or the election results or the latest items in the news. These are words directed against God himself over a long period of time. And God is finally incited to issue his own words through Malachi. In some senses, as much as God could be, um, think of this in human terms, he is exasperated by this point with their constant godlessness and their constant unbelief. They spoke words. Their thoughts about God have tested his patience to the point where he now addresses them. And one of the issues with these people is that they are so hard-hearted and so smug. You see that all through Malachi, that, that they actually challenge God when he confronts them to explain himself. How have we wearied him? How have we spoken against you? Just even by saying that, they're implicating themselves. The fact that they even answer back to God and make him explain himself is the issue. They're making demands of God. So so God, again, ever patient, answers them. The issue is that they give a false portrait of God. In 2.17, chapter 2, verse 17, what wearies God is that they're claiming that he delights in the wicked. And so he's just letting justice go injustice go unchecked where is the god of justice they accuse god really of being uninterested in their plight and even of taking the side of the nations 
Their real complaint is that God isn't keeping his side of the covenant with them. Just when we need you most, God, you're not there. And not only that, the wicked seem to be enjoying life here, don't they? They're wicked and you're not doing anything to stop them. You must be on their side. This is not fair. Do you ever feel like God is like that? Before we criticize these people back there, we have to ask ourselves whether we ever conceive of God of being like that. Does God ever seem absent to you? Do you ever feel like you deserve better, that you're not getting a fair shake? You're trying your best to obey him, but things just are not going your way. In the meantime, you see other people that are totally godless, godless in the way they talk, godless in the way they live, godless in their pursuits. They don't care one iota about following God, and yet everything seems to be going okay for them. It almost seems like the wicked are under God's blessing and the righteous are under God's curse. What's up with that? Well, it's one thing to feel God's absence, but it's quite another thing to start evaluating God based on how we think God should be doing. It's saying we know God better than God knows himself. And it's really saying that we believe that God should be at our beck and call. That, that, that he should act for us right when we need him. Kind of like that cosmic genie that we can just call on. When we start doing that, we inevitably start making wrong assumptions about God. And that becomes then dangerous. It shows a lack of fear of God. For these people to say that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, or that he delights in them, well, it's those kinds of words that weary God, that test his patience. They fly right in the face of what we know to be true about God and his word. Look all over the place for just one example. Psalm 6, the Lord knows, and that word means that he intimately knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's a promise from God, ironclad. Wearying God with their words. We see the same thing down in chapter 3, verse Uh, Let's look at verse 14. In some ways, it's even uh, worse there in that verse. But some of their motives are outed there, aren't they? They challenge God's accusation again. Verse 13, how have we spoken against you? Well, since you ask, I'll tell you. You have said it is vain to serve God. It's vain to serve God. It's useless. It's not worth it. Why is it vain? Well, let's keep going. What is the profit? of our keeping his charge. Now it really exposes their hearts. When we, when we do what you tell us to do, God, there's nothing in it for us. And finally, they say following God is no fun. You see that there? What is the profit of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Saying that following God is kind of like a funeral procession. That's really their complaint. They're not happy. And they think, God should make them happy. When we follow God, we should be happy. So look what they decide to do. And now, we're out of here. Now we call the arrogant blessed. Basically saying, it's better to be unrighteous. If you can't beat them, join them. It's way better over there. We're we're always sad and they're always happy. I want to go where it's happy. 
They're the ones that are under God's blessing and they escape any punishment. Evildoers not only prosper, they say, but they put God to the test and they escape. That's how people, that's how these people saw what was going on around them. That's how they saw themselves and now they feel like that they had a right to tell God what he was like. Well, God says, these words have been hard against me. This is God's people. These are the very people to whom God said at the very beginning of Malachi, I have loved you. This is the God who has kept his side of the covenant in spite of their persistent disobedience. And yet now, they feel like they have the right to question God, to doubt God, to say things that totally misrepresent who God is. And it's that that finally provokes God and tests his patience. We really need to be careful here. There are times, like I said, when we're going to question God and we're going to wonder why he allows certain circumstances in our lives. It's not wrong to question God at those times. But we just need to be careful that we do not allow those questions to drift into imputing motives to God or to make wrong assessments about God. God is allowing me to experience pain, so he must not be kind. Look at those people. They don't go to church. They get to sleep in on Sundays. Uh, they, they even get to work on Sundays. God must like them more than he likes me. We need to be careful there. Well, what's amazing about this is that God doesn't immediately take out these people. Their words have wearied him. Their words have been hard against him. They have misrepresented their God and their deliverer. They have dragged his name through the mud. Yet, God very patiently, once again, extends his grace. And right in the very very middle of that section there, between verses 1 and 12 of chapter 3, God will correct their false representation of who he is, and he turns it right back on them. He simply says, verse 6, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, I am your covenant-keeping God. I am the Lord, I the Lord do not change. He, he, he combats their wearying words and their hard words with his own words. They accuse God of changing. They accuse God of not keeping his side of the covenant. But with these words, he says, your problem is not with me. I do not change. Your problem is with you. You changed. You have not obeyed God. The problem is with you, not with me. God always keeps his promises. He is unchanging. He is always faithful to his word. And one of the ways he's faithful to his word is that he always extends his grace. He is a God of grace. It doesn't use that word, grace, here, but we see it permeates this whole section. God's grace is extended first by coming and cleansing and so in the beginning of chapter 3 God says behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me those words might sound familiar quote them a lot around Christmas time or Palm Sunday they're from Isaiah 40 as well quoted there and then picked up by the gospel writers referring to John the Baptist gospels say that John fulfills this prophecy as he prepares the way for Jesus and then it keeps going in Matthew th- or Malachi 3, verse 1, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. 
and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. The first messenger talks about is John the Baptist. This messenger is Jesus Christ himself. He is coming. God answers their question in 2.17 when they say, where is the God of justice? Well, he's coming. He will come. This might fall into the category of be careful what you ask for. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? They wanted justice, and justice would come. Only when God sent his messenger, he comes in perfect justice, such that no one can stand before him. But that all opens the way for God's grace to come to his people. Grace is the only way we can stand. Why? Because while the people demanded God's justice for them, they had forgotten that they themselves were guilty and that they were deserving of only judgment. What they needed was grace. What they needed was to be cleansed. And that's exactly what this coming messenger would do. He would, not, he would come not to judge, but to cleanse people from their sin. Their words, in a sense, activated God's loving discipline. And discipline is God's grace. When God disciplines his people, that is an act of grace. And this discipline would refine them. Back to verse 2, he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Uh, I think the New International Version translates that launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is the good news of God's grace. When the God of justice comes to his people, people who cannot stand in the presence of his justice because they're guilty, instead of giving them justice, he cleans them up and he purifies them and refines them. Only the messenger of the covenant can do that, the one who is himself pure as he applies his perfections to us through his blood that was shed on the cross. And when he does that work, we will then be able to bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Where do we get these righteous offerings? Answer, through the righteousness of Christ, through the righteousness of another which has been imputed to us by faith. And verse 4, those offerings that come from a purified people then will be pleasing to the Lord. It's the only way we can please the Lord when the messenger comes and cleanses us. Brother and sister Christian, do you see yourself there? If so, give thanks to God for his grace and give thanks to God for his messenger. Do you want to know why? You should be thankful because without Christ, you deserve only judgment. Whatever God doesn't clean up, he cleans out. If you do not put your faith in the messenger, God draws near for judgment. This is God's answer for those who say that God delights in the prosperity of the wicked. In verse 5, I will be a swift witness against them, against all those who break God's laws and who oppress his people and those who do not fear the Lord. God is a God of perfect justice. It is not true that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. 
or that he delights in them, he will be a swift witness against them. His judgment will rain down on unbelievers, on evildoers. They will not escape. Judgment is coming against them. So friend, if you have not put your faith in the messenger of the covenant that God has sent for you, in his son Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that. God is now extending his hand of grace. But God's hand will not be extended forever. He has come once, he's coming again. And, but we don't know when. It could be this afternoon. It could be tomorrow. Don't presume upon God. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him so that the judgment of verse 5 won't fall upon you. Well, we see God's grace again there in verse 6 in that God does not give his people what they deserve. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept them. We do not get what we deserve because and only because the Lord is unchanging in his grace. He has always been like that and he will always be like that. And for our part, we have not changed in our lawbreaking. We have all turned aside from God's statutes and laws. We have all not kept them. Romans 3 confirms that, right? Just in case you think this is talking about the Jews back in the Old Testament, it doesn't apply to us. Romans 3 expressly makes the point that when it comes to sin, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Listen to some of these verses from Romans 3, 10 and following. None is righteous. In case you missed that the first time, no, not one. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 14, their mouth, here again is these words, their, their, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It sounds a lot like it's describing Malachi 3, verses 5 and 6. But thankfully for us, the Lord does not change, and therefore his people are not consumed if they entrust themselves to God. Which brings us to another indication that God's grace is on full display here at the end of verse 7, namely that God always invites us to return to him. God is, always has an open hand, an invitation out to lawbreakers to return to him. He's talking to people who have not kept his statutes and extends a gracious invitation. Return to me and I will return to you. Nothing required God to initiate this invitation. Remember, these are people who have broken God's laws. These are people who have wearied God with their words, and yet he now speaks his own words. This invitation is initiated by God's sovereign grace. But it does require a response. God extends his invitation But this is an invitation to return. Another way of saying that is that we have to repent, to turn away from our sins, to to believe God, to turn to God. Repent and believe. That is always the response that God requires of people who come to him. But as is typical in Malachi, the people even challenge that concept. They see no reason to return. 
They're self-righteous. In their eyes, this is all God's fault, the situation that they're in. They haven't done anything wrong, and so they say, how shall we return? But instead of answering the question directly, God uses an illustration here of their lack of faith. And exhibit A of their total lack of faith is the amounts of their tithes and contributions. It's actually not exhibit A. There's already been exhibit A and B earlier, people who are faithless in their marriages and and other things. But this is the the, um, example, the illustration that he shows here. Will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And that just cues another challenge from them. How have we robbed you? Answer, in your tithes and contribution. This is blunt and direct. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, the whole lot of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. A tithe uh, just literally means a tenth. By God's law through Moses, they were required to bring a tithe, and those tithes were used to support the, the Levites and the priests and those who worked in the temple and also uh, the people that were poor in the land. And so there was really a series of tithes in the law of Moses. But God gets right to the issue and he says, by not meeting the full requirement, you are robbing, are they robbing the priests? Are they robbing the Levites? Are they robbing the poor? Yes. But who are they essentially robbing? You are robbing me. This is a very serious offense in the eyes of God, but it showed them once again that they were guilty of breaking God's covenant. God had not changed. They were not keeping their part. The principle is that everything belongs to the Lord. And if you keep some back from yourself, you're betraying a lack of trust. You're betraying a lack of faith in God. And instead of receiving God's blessing, which they thought they deserved, they were cursed with a curse. Likely in this context having to do with crops, which is right in line with God's promises when his people disobey, going way back to Moses and outlined in Deuteronomy. The issue is that they did not entrust themselves completely, wholly to God. They were not fully devoted to God. And yet God throws down this invitation to return to him. They're guilty of robbing him. He has emphatically established that, yet God reaches out and extends his hand in grace. Return to me and I will return to you. How kind it is for God to always be inviting us to return to him in spite of our almost treason against him in our thoughts and in our words. And he even gives them a strategy for how to do that in connection with their tithes. I use this as a fourth indicator of God's grace there in your outlines, but it's really connected to the third. They had been cursed for not recognizing that everything belongs to the Lord, but God tells them to test his faithfulness to see if he will bless his people. And so when it comes to finances, it's very tempting, isn't it? When we're just getting by, like these people were, and we're making evaluations on where we can cut back, sort of taking inventory to to start cutting back with our contributions to the church, which are, as we learned here, in effect, contributions to God. Commentators say that that was the situation in Malachi. They were economically poor. It was an an economically bad time. So they probably thought that they'd start decreasing their tithes a little bit. Even for us, that seems like it might be the first and easiest place to cut. 
doesn't it? That way we can still afford the other things that we might put into the category of necessary expenses or lifestyle choices that we need to have money for. We start to justify it by saying, ah, that won't really affect anything. And besides, who's going to know? Well, we now see that someone does know and that someone is pretty important. Well, the good news is that not only does God know, not only does, God, does everything belong to God, but God also here sympathizes with our plight a little bit. He understands our dilemma, and so he says, give it a shot. Give it a shot. Try it out. Bring the whole thing and see if I bless you. And of course, he will. The if in verse 10 turns into an I will in verse 11. not easy to take that step, is it? We wonder if God's going to come through. But this requires from us exactly what God wants from us, and that is faith. God wants his people to trust him. So I don't know what that might look like for you, but just remember this underlying principle. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust that he is God. He wants us to see that we, can, we cannot afford not to trust God. He wants you to trust that he will take care of you. He wants you to have faith that when you obey him completely and entrust yourself to him totally, he will bless you. Maybe not materially, not say anything about that here, but with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And on a deeper level, he wants us to trust that he is true to his word. He wants us to trust that he is unchanging. He wants us to trust in his sovereign grace. He wants us to trust that he loves us, that he loves you, and that he is always for you. Never forget that. He proved that by sending his son, his messenger, And by sending his son, he opened the windows of heaven for all of us. He opened the windows of heaven for all of us and for you. In Jesus, God came down from heaven to rescue us, to rescue you. We have, yes, wearied the Lord with our words, often do that, but he has opened the windows of heaven and sent down the word to dwell among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Will you trust him? Will you trust the God of all grace? Will you trust him in your giving? Will you return to the God of all grace? Father, we thank you that you are indeed unchanging. You are unchanging in your mercy. You are unchanging in your love. You are unchanging in your grace. Father, we confess that we all too frequently fail to trust you. Even sometimes coming to the point when we accuse you of not being who you claim to be. 
Yet, you are so kind. You are always willing to bless us. And you have already blessed us more than we ever deserved by sending your beloved Son to make it possible to stand before you forgiven. We thank you for your marvelous, amazing grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.